0: Well, good afternoon, Revive. I am delighted and uh, um, honored to be here to share God's word with you today. Um, This is a plumb line. Now, before I was a pastor, I was a carpenter. I used a plumb line a lot. The interesting thing about a plumb line is it's simply a string fastened to a high point. Gravity pulls it to the ground. And this is what we call true to plumb. It is straight up and down. It's how they built the Parthenon. It's how they would have built the pyramids. It's how we would look at a skyscraper today. See, I can line it up. I can look at those baffles on the wall there and say, does that line up? That one's pretty lined up. See the corner of the wall there? Is it lined? It's pretty lined up. How about you? If I line it up with you. Are we in line with the plumb line? We just read from Amos. And in this passage, God said a plumb line amongst them and they were not in line with it. Now the plumb line was his word. The plumb line was the covenant he had made with his people. And they were not in line with the covenant. They were not in line with his word. And so we read in the passage two times, God is about to send judgment upon them. First with the wave of locusts that are going to eat all the crops and the, the country is going to suffer. And, and uh, Amos pleads, oh God, don't do this to them. They can't survive and God relents. And then another time, God's going to judge them with fire, and Amos pleads for them and says, oh God, they're so small, please don't do this, and God relents. And then the third time, God says, I will spare them no longer. Now the problem that God had with Israel at this time, it wasn't just a matter of sin. Yes, they were in sin. That was kind of the root of the problem, but it was beyond that. It's not just the fact that there was sin. It's the fact that there was sin and they didn't care about it. But it's not, it's not just a matter that they weren't doing what they should be doing. And that they were doing what they shouldn't be doing. The problem was they were calling it good. They were calling their sin good. Now sin is something that we all struggle with. Which is why Paul said the good I do not want to do. This I keep doing. The evil I do not want to do. This I do. Right? Oh wretched man that I am. There's this frustration that he experiences at himself. God knew that sin was going to be a problem for all of us. He knew the sin was going to be a problem in Israel at that time. And he had given clear instructions on how they could deal with this problem. How they could obtain forgiveness. How they could receive help. How they could receive help for their pursuit of righteousness. But the problem that got Israel to the point where God said, I will spare them no longer. It wasn't just the fact that there was sin around. The problem was that they didn't care about it. They they didn't agree with God about it. The problem wasn't, again, I can't stress this enough, the problem wasn't just the fact that there was a presence of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one, the scripture says. The problem wasn't just the fact that there was sin. The problem was that they were justifying their sin. The problem was that they were enjoying their sin, calling it good. The problem was their refusal to acknowledge, to confess, and to repent of their sin. Instead, they took great pride in their sin, and so they immersed themselves in it all the more. And then after, finally, in the book of Amos, after so much patience, After so much mercy, after so much grace, God finally released the consequences that He told them were coming, that He warned them were coming, and He allowed His judgment to fall on the people, and they were carried off into captivity. You see, both on the New Testament side of the cross and on the Old Testament side of the cross, forgiveness of sins has been made readily available. But we must access it through a specific way. We must access it through humility and repentance. And they were unwilling. And So God raised up the Assyrians, bringing destruction and ruin upon Israel. I'd like to talk this afternoon, as already been mentioned, about a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, a fear of the Lord is something that the Israelites in Amos' time did not have. They did not have it, and ultimately, that's what led to their downfall. They had no fear of the Lord. Now, they still had their priests. They still had their ceremonies. They still took pride in being called the people of God. But in truth, they had no fear of the Lord, and so they were emboldened to do whatever they wanted, to live however they wanted, and whatever they wanted got them hauled off into captivity. Now, before I move forward, I would like to stop and um, acknowledge the presence of what, for some of us, might be a troublesome paradox. Now, maybe we may ask what a paradox is. A dictionary defines a paradox as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, proves itself to be well-founded and true. Essentially as a paradox, a paradox is, is two things that on the surface don't seem like they can go together. They don't seem like they can coexist. They seem like contradictions, but they actually do to go together and they can go together. We find paradoxes throughout our lives, throughout our nation, throughout the scripture even. I mean, we just look at this example. We can say Jesus is describing the scripture as both a lion and a lamb. It's paradoxical. Lions and lambs are very different. One might say that they're on total opposite ends of the spectrum. Here's a big one. The immortal God of all power, of heaven and earth, the immortal God died on the cross for my sins. It's paradoxical. But when you think about it, you go, oh, I can see how this is true, how it actually does work together. Now, because God created everything, because he is the master of all things, it stands to reason that he is constantly embroiled in the paradoxical, right? Because he's both in and out. He's both up and down. He lives inside of us and outside of us. He's everywhere and everything. So he's constantly embroiled in the paradoxical. But the paradox that I want to address this morning or this afternoon is the paradox that on one hand, we have First John 4 verses 8 and 18 that says, God is love. And it says, perfect love casts out fear. And then on the other hand, we have Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. In Deuteronomy 8.6, walk in his ways and fear him. Now we need to address this paradox because I can tell you that over the years, I have discovered that the thought of fearing God is distasteful for many people. And I believe that it's disturbing for two reasons. First off, it seems to be an intrusion onto our comfortable doctrine of God being loving and merciful and a kind heavenly father, which he is, by the way. He is absolutely all those things. But the doctrine of fearing God seems to intrude on that, and so we're uncomfortable with that. And the second reason, I think, is that fear is generally considered an unwelcome presence in our lives, right? It disrupts our comfort. It's the last thing we want at the Thanksgiving dinner table. It's the last thing you want interrupting your summer is fear. It's an unwelcome presence. And so the thought of fearing God disturbs, and I've even discovered, obsesses a lot of people. And yet, well over a hundred times, I counted it myself. I went how many times, and as soon as I got past a hundred times, I stopped and said, okay, I can tell them over a hundred times. Well over a hundred times, The scripture says, fear God. And so we need to sort out this paradox. We need to address this common discomfort. And it's important that we do this because as the Proverbs passage pointed out, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Anybody want life? That's what the fear of the Lord leads to. The fear of the Lord is a good and beautiful thing. And so right here from the beginning, as we launch into the message, I am going to dismantle a common misconception about the fear of the Lord. And the common misconception is this. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean we should ever be afraid of God. It just means we should really respect him. We should just have a kind of reverence for him. Now, Respect and reverence are definitely a part of it. In fact, they are a very big part of it. But they are the good result of a healthy fear. They are not the definition of it. So what does it mean to really fear the Lord? Now, this is not complicated, but because of the common visceral reaction, I'm going to be absurdly thorough. Uh, I want to make sure we get over this hurdle so that it's it's something we can begin to embrace. And so my strategy tonight is going to be to um, examine Hebrew and Greek definitions. We're going to look at examples of the term fear God in their varied applications. And finally, we'll apply it to a modern day analogy. So when we're talking about word definitions, when we look at the phrase, the fear of the Lord in the Hebrew, we find that three different words for fear are are the most commonly used. The first one is Yaira, and it means dreadful, exceedingly, terrifying, fearful, reverence. Now, in Hebrew tradition, this word is often used in the context of trembling before that which is awesome. It's not just about being in awe of something. It's about fearfully trembling in the presence of something awesome. The root word in the Hebrew is actually flow from the gut. It's like butterflies in the stomach or, or worse. And this word is used in Deuteronomy 25. God is about to lead his people into the land. And he says, this very day, I will begin to put the terror and the fear, the Yaira of you in all nations under heaven, they will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. God says, I'm going to put a fear of you in them so that they will get out of the land and the Israelites can then possess it. This same word is used in Proverbs 16:6, 6, where it says, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for through the fear, through the yira of the Lord, evil is is avoided. Now almost every time this word is used in the scripture, it's translated in relation to fear. Once in a blue moon, the translators chose to use the word reverence, but that's rare. So yaira is one of the words used when the scripture says fear God, yaira God. The second one is the most common and it's yare, and it means fear, frightened, dread, reverence, this word is used in 1 Samuel 28 verses four and five when it says, so the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid. He was Yare and his heart trembled greatly. This is the same word used in Deuteronomy 8 verses four to six. Israel had been wandering in the in the a desert for forty years because of their sin, and God and it says God says to them, "Your clothing did not wear out, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son." See, that was the purpose of wandering the darkness, uh, desert for forty years. God was disciplining them. Therefore, verse six, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways and fear him and yare him. This word comes for that same flow from the gut type meaning. Now the biblical application is often used in connection with fear leading to worshipful behaviors. To give you a pagan example of this, it would be like a primitive jungle tribe who just has a stick for a weapon coming to fear tigers so much that they begin to worship them. That's actually a pretty common thing we've seen throughout history. Now, could we say that they have reverence for the tigers? Absolutely, but it goes deeper than reverence. It's an experience that's, that's so intense, it, it, it's felt in the gut. Now, 336 times in the Hebrew Bible, this word is translated as fear or terrified or something like that. Only four times is it translated as reverence. And then the third word is pakad. This word pakad is used 49 times, and every time it means alarm, dread, fear, terror. This word is used in Psalm 36 verse one in uh, in relation to the wicked not fearing God. It's actually a very powerful text. If we look at Psalm 1, it says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear, no pakad of God before their eyes. They do not fear God. Back in my old church, one of the elders used to say, Pastor Corey, the world isn't just going to hell. They're strutting to hell. They're proud. They have no fear of God. But they should. Because there is a plumb line in their midst. And they ain't lining up. Verse 2, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. They don't fear God, but they should. My point is this, that the definition of the word fear, when used in the term fear of the Lord, when you explore it throughout the scriptures, yaira, yare, pakad, or the Greek word Phobis, overwhelmingly, it means fear. When the Bible says fear God, it means fear. Fear God. Why? Because he is God. That's why the translation is left the way it is. That's why we haven't changed it officially to reverence or respect or some watered-down version of the word. Absolutely, reverence is part of it, but that's not the whole of it. Reverence is the fruit of godly fear. It is not the definition of it. So based on an accurate word definition, we have to ask, are we really supposed to be afraid of God? That seems to go against everything we just sung this afternoon. (laughs) Well, now we need to look at not just the definition, but we need to look at the phrase, actually, in its wide-ranging array throughout the scripture. So I'm going to start by looking at Psalm 48, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who yare him. And he delivers them taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What a delightful passage. A delightful passage filled with positivity centered on the many benefits that come from fearing God. In fact, if we find a very important biblical principle regarding the fear of the Lord in verses 7 and 9. Verse 7, God delivers those who fear him. In verse 9, those who fear the Lord lack nothing. In other words, fearing God does not diminish your life. It will not ruin your supper plans. It will not ruin your summer plans. It will enhance them. But we also discover in this passage that it's not just the pagans that should fear God. David says, you, yes, you, God's holy people, fear God. In fact, most of the scriptures, Old Testament and uh, New Testament, almost 100% of the time, he is speaking to the people of God. He's speaking to the chosen of God. In the New Testament, he's speaking to the bride of Christ and he's saying, you fear God. You especially should fear God because you know him. Now let's face it, if we are actually aware of the magnitude of the power and the holy and the majesty of the most high, (laughs) we're gonna have a healthy dose of fear. Not a brand of fear that makes you run away from God but a brand of fear that draws you towards him. Look at verse 10. Those who seek the Lord, those who seek the Lord, lack no good thing. See, the person in this passage who fears the Lord is also seeking him. Fearing the Lord and seeking the Lord go together like a hand in a glove, and that speaks volumes. The fear of the Lord is a brand of fear that saves, it sets us free. Yes, it's a paradox. It's also God's word. So as we're looking for evidence as to what the fear of the Lord is, what it looks like, what, what, if you're going to mark anything down, if you're going to write it down tonight, the fear of the Lord results in blessing and deliverance, verse 7 and 9, and the fear of the Lord still motivates and encourages us to seek him, verse 10. That's important to note. See, any other evidence that we uncover is going to have to reconcile itself with those first two principles, or at the very least it's going to have to help interpret them. Next, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. This is one of those passages that indirectly and yet in crystal clear fashion reveals to us whether fearing God is appropriate or not. Now keep in mind that the book of Hebrews is written to Christians. He's writing to believers. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, if we deliberately, if we Keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to his people. He's writing to the church. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now, this is describing the same heart that Israel had back in the book of Amos, where we began. The problem wasn't just the fact that sin existed. The problem was the fact that they celebrated their sin, that they justified their sin, that they showed no sign of sincere repentance and so judgment came down upon them. This passage is saying the sacrifice of Christ does not cover unrepentant sin. See, there's a difference between forgiven sin and unforgiven sin, even on this side of the cross. Sin that is forgiven is sin that is recognized for what it is. God calls it sin, and we say, yes, Lord, I agree with you, that is sin. It is appropriately labeled, it is grieved over and repented of. We say, oh, God, this sin is in my life. Lord, help me, let this go, Lord. I pray that you would just renew me, Father. Refine me, Father. See, that sin is covered by the grace of God. There's so much grace that sin can't handle it. Sin that is not forgiven is a sin that we justify. It's a sin we don't grieve over. It's a sin we don't repent of. It's the sin that we say, this is pure, this is good, this is wonderful, this is the way I want it. And to that type of sin, the Bible says, no sacrifice for sin is left. But only the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished, listen to this now, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, once again, this is not referencing the mere presence of sin. This is talking about those who have no fear of the Lord. Those who celebrate their sin, who take pride in their sin. They promote their sin. They embrace their lust and their sexual distortions. They embrace their hatred and their malice. They justify their malicious tongues and their greed. They love and promote their sin and God will have none of it. Verse 30, for we know him, he's talking about God, who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to verse 31, speaking to the church. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, God is love. But for those of us who insult the spirit of grace, it would be a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is it right to fear the Lord? Absolutely. Both on your behalf and on the behalf of others. Remember Proverbs sixteen six. It says, through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. How? Because my healthy fear of the consequences of sin keeps me from justifying that sin and allowing it to root up and destroy my life. You know what I think is probably the most terrifying passage of scripture in all the Bible? It's found in the book of Amos yet again, spoken to that same group of people who were justifying their sin, who were looking at the plumb line. In fact, they were trying to get rid of the plumb line. They were trying to get rid of Amos altogether. They were saying, "This is what I think is good." Spoken to the same group of people. And again, after so much mercy, after so much grace, after so much goodness, it finally says in Amos chapter 8, verse 2 Then the Lord said to me, The time is right for my people Israel. It's like their sin had reached a fever pitch. I will spare them no longer. Verse 3 And that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. This passage does nothing to diminish the incomprehensible volume of God's love, of God's goodness, of His grace, of His mercy. of his desire that all should come to repentance, but it reminds us that God is holy. Like blazing fire, and he will not tolerate a people who insult the spirit of grace, who try to take the blood of Christ and apply it to unrepentant sin. By doing so, they treat as an unholy thing the precious blood of Christ. Now, I say that passage is terrifying, but it's actually really helpful because it reminds me to have a healthy fear of the Lord. And a healthy fear of the Lord keeps me from that situation. Just as a healthy fear of the police officers (laughs) keeps you on the right side of the law. So the fear of the Lord results in the blessing and deliverance of God. The fear of the Lord motivates and encourages us to seek him. And verse three, or Number three is going to say that the fear of the Lord is an actual fear. An actual fear regarding the consequences of daring to justify what God has clearly labeled sin. And the wise person fears God and does not go there. My passion for this sermon goes back many years when I felt the Holy Spirit clearly impress on my heart that if we lose the fear of the Lord, people, we lose everything. If you're going to write one thing down tonight, write that down. If we lose the fear of the Lord, we lose everything. We lose our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We lose our reverence for the shed blood of Christ. We lose our desire to obey God's word. And as a result, we lose our blessing. We lose our victory. We lose our wisdom. We lose our life. Folks, I really believe that the reason that Christianity has stagnated in America today is because we have, by and large, lost the fear of the Lord. We, his people, have lost the fear of the Lord. And that lack of fear has emboldened us to reject and distort God's word we have forgotten about the supreme authority of God. Now we remember it academically, we remember it philosophically, but in the actual application of our individual lives on Wednesday and on Thursday and all throughout the week, we have forgotten about the supreme authority of God. We have forgotten about the absolute power of God. We have forgotten about the blazing holiness of God. And in our star-spangled hearts, we have reduced him down to a ridiculous and distorted definition of love. We say, God is love. By the way, when the scripture says God is love as it does, that does not mean that love defines God. It means that God defines love. The difference is astronomical. As soon as you start to think that love defines God, then guess what? When you define love, you define God. And that is the root of so much of our problem in the church today. Love does not define God. God defines love. The fear of the Lord is a crucial component to the abundant life offered in Christ Jesus. But I fear that many of us in Christendom today have lost it, but we need it. Because without the fear of the Lord, we ain't got nothing. The fear of the Lord results in the blessing and deliverance of God. The fear of the Lord motivates us to seek him. The fear of the Lord is an actual fear regarding the consequences for daring to justify what God has clearly labeled sin. Now just to solidify this third point uh, third point for those who may be struggling and still have to reconcile this paradox of God being both loving and yet us fearing him, uh, just look at Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 4. I think it solves the paradox. Verse 4 says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. This is what the scripture is talking about when over and over again, it says, do not fear, do not be afraid, right? All through the scripture, do not fear, do not be afraid. He's talking about this. He's saying, I am bigger than all this. So don't be afraid of the storm. Don't be afraid of the diagnosis. Don't be afraid of what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Don't be afraid of what you're going to do in retirement. Don't be afraid of persecution. I'm God. I got this. I hold you in my hands. And then verse five, but I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The fear of the Lord results in the blessing and deliverance of God. The fear of the Lord motivates and encourages us to seek. And the fear of the Lord is an actual fear regarding the very real consequences for daring to justify what God has clearly labeled sin. Folks, the church is under attack with this right now. We are under pressure to redefine sin. Pressure like no other time. We must not acquiesce. We must be in line with the plumb line. God's word, God's covenant. He tells us what sin is, not us. Psalm 33, verse eight. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The fear of the Lord, we find here, is marked by a reverence for who God is and what he has done. He is the almighty creator. He is the first and the last. He is the name above all names. He is the one we walked into this building this afternoon to worship, and he is here, and he knows all of our hearts. That should give us a sense of awe and a sense of healthy fear. I actually don't have this on the screens. I was reading this earlier today in Jeremiah chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 20. It says, Announce to the descendants of Jacob and proclaim to Judah, that's us now who are the seed of Abraham. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? Now the answer to that question is, yes, we should. He said, I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The seas may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross over it. You should fear me because look at who I am. Look at what I control. Look at what I hold in my fingers and on my hand. I spoke and the stars leapt into existence. By my breath do you breathe. I fear the Lord is marked by reverence for who God is and what he has done. A healthy fear of the Lord acknowledges this and bows down in awe before him in worship and adoration. Throughout the scriptures, the true fear of the Lord always results in obedience, in the pursuit of holiness and purity, in worship and in abundant life. A healthy fear is a good thing. Now we may ask, but doesn't, Fear contradict love. Doesn't fearing God contradict love? The answer is no. And understanding this is not difficult. Simply picture what I think is perhaps one of the most precious and pure human relationships there is, and that is a really good dad. A really good dad with his little boy who idolizes his father. They are like peas in a pod. That boy is his dad's mini me He loves his dad. His dad is the strongest. His dad is the fastest. His dad is the smartest. His dad is the best. His dad is his hero. He wants to be just like his dad. His dad is his protector. His dad is the model for everything he wants to be. But when his mom says, you better smarten up, boy, or I'm going to tell your father when he gets home. That boy is gripped by fear, holy, healthy, beautiful fear. Now the boy's fear does nothing to diminish the father's love, nor does it diminish the boy's fierce pride and connection with his dad. No, that fear denotes true respect and beyond. It shines as a tangible example that that boy, even though he identifies so closely with his dad, He knows who's who. He knows who's the authority and he knows that even though his father loves him, in fact, I would say because his father loves him, his father will not accept news of his willful sin. He'll say, come here, son, we need to have a chat. His father will not accept news of his rebellion and disrespect. The boy's fear keeps him from continuing to sin. And that actually strengthens his relationship with his dad. That actually expands the boy's opportunity for grace. Because there's a second paradox. Those who fear the Lord have the least to fear. Because when you fear your father like that, his arms are open to embrace and forgive. Now in this healthy relationship, does the boy live every moment in terror of his father? Of course not. Of course not. His father walks along and the kid grabs his leg and his father's dragging the kid across the floor. He jumps on his dad's back. He's at total comfort with his dad. But when sin rises up, that boy knows dad isn't gonna tolerate this. And that fear molds that boy into the person he needs to be. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about when it's healthy fear. And the day that that healthy mix of of comfort and fear breaks down, when that boy begins to think, actually, I don't really care what my dad says, that's a tragic day. For us fallible fathers, that day is inevitable, likely with our kids. But with our God, that day should never come. Let none of us think for a moment that our dad is not to be feared. Our heavenly father. This holy fear does not diminish our relationship. It strengthens it. It purifies it. It proves it. Isaiah 66, six two says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at my word. Oh, folks, the scripture, this is God's holy word. Far be it from me to read it and then comfortably do the opposite. Oh my good daddy is not gonna tolerate that. Philippians 1 or 2, 12 calls us to work out our salvation. Now it's not talking about earning your salvation. It's talking about walking through the Christian life and the refinement process with fear and trembling, with phobos and tromos in the Hebrew, terrified and quaking. Why? Because when you actually recognize who you are in relation to who he is, you will experience an overwhelming sense of awe to the point where it affects your gut. As we've already established, this quaking and trembling does not drive us away from God, it drives us to him. If your fear of God drives you away from him, it's not healthy fear. It's not the biblical fear, it's not the holy fear. A healthy fear will drive you to him. And yet, if you and I don't have a very real fear of the Lord, we got nothing. We got nothing. I'll tell you exactly what will happen. We will begin to diminish the value of going to church. Of getting together with brothers and sisters. Meh, I'm sick today. I'll watch it online. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't really feel like it today. I got a a wedding coming up in three weeks. I really don't want to catch COVID, so I'm just going to. We're going to diminish the value of going to church. We're going to start to question God's authority and God's word. We're going to start finding ourselves agreeing with the world on things that the scripture disagrees with. We're going to get comfortable with sin. Ultimately, that's going to make us spiritual frauds, and sooner or later, God is going to say one of two things. He's going to say, come here, child, son, daughter. It's time for a whooping. Why? Because he loves you. Or worse yet, he's going to say, I will spare them no longer. Your father loves you. (laughs) But he's your dad, and he will not tolerate it. I often say to my congregation, by all means, celebrate grace through our worship songs, but don't for a second get your theology from them. From our worship songs, you would just think that God's a big idiot that just doles out everything to you, do whatever you want, grace and mercy cover you all. Here's the thing, folks. Above you is an ocean of grace and mercy. It is hovering over you. You are connected to it through the tube of faith. And at the tube of faith is a nozzle of repentance. If you will open that nozzle, <laughs> you'll be met with so much grace and mercy, you won't even be able to stand. It's going to knock you down. But if you don't fear God, and you have that nozzle of repentance closed, you're just off doing what you want, You think you can somehow access that ocean without faith? No. If you're not careful, the worship songs will make you think that's reality. It's not. Faith and repentance, folks. Faith and repentance. Fear the Lord. This is what we're missing in our church in America today. This is why we're in the condition we are. If I don't fear the Lord, it's because I don't know who he truly is. In fact, chances are, I know so little about him that I am in jeopardy of being part of the crowd in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity, you workers of sin, you who thought you could just live your life with that repentance nozzle closed, defining sin for yourself. But for those who do fear God, the angel of the Lord encamps around them. He delivers them. He sustains them. He answers when they call. They are the ones with whom he has the closest relationships. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, the scripture says. Because we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, the scripture says. And if we don't fear God, folks, we ain't got none of it. What are we even doing here if that's the case? We are to be pitied among men, as Paul would say. I hope I'm not coming across too intense. Sorry, I just really feel passionate about this. I really feel it's a message that needs to be heard. Sometimes I get I, I, I get too intense. I apologize. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24 says... The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that, listen to us, here we, have, here we have a reason for healthy fear, so that we may always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. We discover in this passage that the purpose for fearing the Lord is to prosper and protect us. The fear of the Lord results in blessing and deliverance of God. The fear of the Lord motivates us to seek him. The fear of the Lord is an actual fear regarding the consequences of sin should we dare to justify sin. The fear of the Lord is marked by reverence, deep adoration for who God is and what he has done. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And when you actually know who This God is. The breadth of his power. The purity of his holiness. And the fact that he has chosen to call you his own, well, that gives you a whole new sense of significance. That places you in a whole new category of security. That grants you a whole new level of peace. That is the blessing for those who walk in the fear of the Lord. So now that we know what the fear of the Lord is, by definition, it's an actual fear resulting in holy reverence and practice its humility before God in the pursuit of righteousness. Its rewards are salvation and blessing relationship and peace. Now that we know that it is good, I encourage you to cultivate it. I encourage you to pass it on to your children. This fear that saves. This fear that is the beginning of all good thought. I invite the worship team to come up as I pray with our closing song. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray this afternoon that a holy and good and pure fear would wash over us, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. Lord, I thank you that you are so good, that you are so kind, that you are so loving, Lord. But I pray that we would never forget you are just, that sin is a problem, that faith and repentance are a necessity. Lord, in this new covenant we have with you, this plumb line, is repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that we would reflect over our lives. We would root out any type of thinking, any type of double-mindedness that would cause us to believe that we can cheat on you. Lord, I think of your word in the Old Testament and your complaint of the adulterous people who thought they could come to church and have intimacy with you after just coming out of the world having intimacy with them. Lord, I pray this afternoon for a holy fear that doesn't drive us away from you, but that drives us towards you, where we receive so much grace and mercy we can't even end on. I ask us in Jesus' mighty name, amen.